0: please turn to Romans chapter three. You can turn to, flip to, scroll to Romans chapter three. If you're wondering where Romans is, it's in your New Testament, second half of your Bible. We're gonna be looking at Romans chapter three together, starting at verse 21. And if you could help me here, reading God's word out loud with me, I'm kind of losing my voice today. I've been so excited all day. If you wouldn't mind standing to your feet and if you could read with me this passage from Romans chapter three, I'd really appreciate that. And we're gonna, sit, we're gonna read this out loud together in a big loud voice let's read all together together right now let's say but now god has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of moses and the prophets long ago we are made right with god by placing our faith in jesus christ and this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are for everyone has sinned we all fall short of god's glorious standard Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood, this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. We're doing a series here at Thrive right now. It's called Overcome My Unbelief. And this series is tackling specific questions that people have about the Christian faith. In some cases, these are criticisms or objections that people have about the Christian faith. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. If you've got questions, I'm so glad that you're here. I hope you'll find that this place is a place that's safe for you to ask questions and explore your questions in a non-judgmental way, in a way that you can hopefully find some answers and some good feedback to help you on those questions. The questions we've been looking at so far are, in episode one, we looked at, is Christian faith compatible with science? We looked at that question. In episode two, we said, how can I know that there is a God? We looked at from a scientific perspective, from a philosophical perspective, from various perspectives, how there is evidence that points to the existence of God. In episode three, how can a loving God exist in a world full of evil and suffering? That was episode three. Episode four, we looked at how can a loving God send people to hell? Does God really send people to hell? And if so, how could he do that? Episode 5, we looked at the very big question of, can I really trust the Bible? And if you've missed any of these messages, you can go online on our podcast and check them out. But today, we're looking at a really important question. And it's a question that many people often have. And I'm going to tell you the question, and then you can take your seats. The question is, how can Jesus be the only way to God? Could you turn to your neighbors, and with either a smile on your face or a quizzical look on your face, could you ask them, how can it be? How can it be? How can it be? Please have your seats. See, have you ever asked yourself that question? Or maybe you've been asked that question? How can Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God? Isn't that such an arrogant bigoted, narrow-minded way to think? Aren't there lots of good people who either don't have a religion or have another religion, and you're telling me that just because they didn't believe in Jesus, that they're gonna be in hell for eternity? Isn't it just enough to be a good person? You know, what about people who've never even heard about Jesus before? Are you saying that what's gonna happen to them? See, maybe you've heard these questions before. Maybe you've had these questions before. Well, you're not the only one. There's a guy called Rabbi Shmuel Botich, and he says it this way. He says, I am absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. Oprah Winfrey, a very famous celebrity, says, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. See, how do you, as a Christian, if you're a Christian here, how do you respond to something like that? See, we're going to look today at what I believe are two myths, two false ideas that many people widely believe about religions generally, and about Christianity specifically. And we're going to look at those two together right now. Myth number one. Myth number one is it is arrogant and intolerant of Christians to think that their view is exclusively right, while everyone else's view is wrong. That's the first myth that I believe many people have. And, you know, let me tell you something that might surprise you today, is that being a Christian does not require that you believe that other religions are completely wrong. See, for example, Christians can agree with the first two noble truths of Buddhism, which are that there is suffering in this world and that a lot of the suffering we see is, the, is caused by our own greed, our hatred, our ignorance. Christians can affirm that. That's something that Buddhists believe as well. Christians can also affirm, as other religions do, that committing adultery is wrong, like cheating on your husband or your wife is wrong, stealing is wrong, you don't want to lie, you want to you know, live life in integrity. A lot of religions might talk about that. Does that mean that Christians agree with everything that other religions teach? No, definitely not. But that's not to say that we don't have certain things in common. And to the extent that Christians and other people from other religions have common beliefs, we can fight for those beliefs together. And you know, still though, is it true that Christians believe they have a unique and powerful message off the world? Absolutely. But before you charge Christians for being arrogant, for thinking that what they preach is the best way, let me tell you something. And the myth is that, you know what, it is so arrogant for Christians to think that their way is the right way. Let me tell you this. This is the truth. Every perspective on religion has an element of exclusivity. Every perspective on religion has this element of, I'm right, you're wrong, or I'm more right than you are, not just the Christian perspective. See, the fact is, you know, for example, Muslims, they believe that if you want to go to heaven, you need to profess your faith in Allah and you need to profess your faith in the prophet Muhammad. If you don't, there's no way you're going to heaven. That's being exclusive. Buddhism began as a response to Hinduism, saying Hinduism's got it wrong, Buddhism is the right way. Even if you you read some of the stuff that the Dalai Lama has said, he'll say that, you know what, you can't be a Christian and a Buddhist at the same time. You can't be a Christian Buddhist, you can't be a Buddhist Christian. That's being exclusive. Judaism teaches that there's only one God. His name is Yahweh. But that God is definitely not the Jesus. Jesus that Christians worship. It's definitely not the Allah that Muslims worship. That's being exclusive. Atheists say, you know what? You're all wrong. There is no God. There's nothing more than what we have in this physical universe. And so you're all wrong. That's also being exclusive. You're basically excluding about 95% of the world that does believe in some sort of God. And then agnostics will say, well, you know what? All of you, including the atheists, you're all wrong as well. And it's because you are so confident in what you believe when you really can't be so confident. So you're wrong as well. So, you know, it's not just Christians who have an exclusive view. All viewpoints on religion have an element of exclusivity. And if you try to be what's called an inclusivist, where you try to be someone who says you want to try to bring everything together and say, you know what, all of you guys, you're all just talking about the same thing. You're just, you know, if if you are an inclusivist who thinks, you know, all religions are basically talking about the same thing, you're actually being, believe it or not, just as exclusive in your view as everyone else. How? Why? Let me explain. See, sometimes inclusivists, they will use this illustration of four blind men with an elephant. And they'll say, you know what, these different religions that say they've got the truth, they've got the right way, they're all just like four blind men with an elephant. And you know, each one's got a different part of the elephant that they're holding on to. And they're each trying to describe the elephant. So you've got maybe this one blind guy who's got the tail and he's hanging on to the tail and he's got like, I got the truth of the elephant. The truth of the elephant is that it is thin and it's hairy and it moves like a whip. That is the truth of the elephant. And then someone else who's holding on to the to the leg of the elephant, he's like, no, 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 you're wrong. You don't have the truth. I have the truth. The truth is the elephant is big and thick like a tree trunk. And and another guy, he's holding on to the ear, and he says, no, 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 you're both wrong. See, the elephant is, and he's got the ear. He's holding the ear. He's stroking the ear. He's like, no, let me tell you what the truth of the elephant is. The truth of the elephant is it's flat and smooth. And then finally, there's one more guy who's also blind, and he's got the he's got the trunk of the elephant in his hands, and he's like, Lord, let me tell you, you guys are all wrong see the elephant is long and he's not smooth he's rough like a hose and see the inclusivist will use this illustration to say you know what all of you guys are actually talking about the same thing just different parts of the same thing and so it's actually arrogant and even ignorant and intolerant for you guys to be saying that each other is wrong now inclusivists use this to illustrate that no one religion can say that they're right and others are wrong but see, what's the problem with this approach? What's the problem with this illustration? This approach assumes that the inclusivist sees it all. The, this approach in, assumes that the inclusivist is able to see what these blind religious guys cannot see. That this, the, this, the inclusivist claims that I see the whole picture, you guys only see a part. I have the whole truth, which you guys are just blindly groping after. And, and, and so who's got the superior knowledge of reality? It's me. I've got it more than all of you put together. And so in other words, in trying to include everybody, the inclusivist who says all of you guys are just talking about the same thing—you're actually excluding everybody—and so if you're an inclusivist who thinks you know it's arrogant or intolerant for a Christian or any religion to believe that they're right and others are wrong—well, guess what? As an inclusivist, you actually might be doing the very same thing you're accusing other people of doing. That's why the Bahá'í Faith became what it is. is the Bahá'í movement began as this movement tried to bring all these different religions together, take their different tenets together. In so doing, they actually missed the point of all of those religions, and they actually created a brand new religion. So, that Baha'i is now a religion on its own. Classic example. And so, the next time someone tells you, you know, Christians are so arrogant to say that they've got the exclusives on the truth, everyone else is wrong, remember this every viewpoint on religion, even the ones that try to include everyone, will have an element of exclusivity. And see, one more thing just because two people disagree or have mutually exclusive views on religion, does that mean that they can't get along? No, of course not. You know, every week, I will go running with a group of friends. One is an atheist, one is a Muslim, there's me, the Christian, there's one guy from a Jewish background who's been in our group as well. And every week it's a Muslim, a Jew, an atheist, and a Christian go into the woods for a run. That sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's actually true. It's actually true. It's that a Muslim, a Jew, an atheist, and a Christian, we go into the woods for a run and we're huffing and puffing, we're sweating, And it's one of those things where as we're talking about life and talking about, you know, how the week's going, how our kids are doing, there will be times when we'll get into, you know, conversations where we obviously do not agree with one another on what we believe. And let me ask you this. Does the fact that we disagree with one another keep us from having an intelligent, courteous, respectful conversation with one another? No, of course not. Does it keep us from being friends with one another and enjoying each other's company? No, it doesn't. Does it keep us from caring for one another as friends? Of course not. See, my running group for me is a literal example that, and you can write this down, you don't always need to see eye to eye in order to run side by side. You don't always need to see eye to eye in order to run side by side. And why is it important that I mention this? It's because I want you to know, and especially if you're not a Christian in this place, I'm not here, and Christians aren't here, and Thrive Church is not here to hate on other religions, to say, you know, Muslims, you suck, or Buddhists, you suck, or atheists, you suck. See, we're here to say all people have worth and value regardless of their background even regardless of their opinion. And at the same time, we have different views. And so we're not going to pretend that we all believe the same thing. We're not going to pretend that all our views are the same. Instead, let's be honest, let's be open, and let's talk about those views in a respectful way. And on topics that matter the most, let's ask the important question, is there a view that makes the most sense? If you believe that, say, amen. And see, after all, if the questions that religion tries to answer are life's most important questions, and if I, as a Christian, honestly believe that I've got something that can help others and to save lives, is it really arrogant for me to want to share that? No. No, maybe it'll be arrogant if I do so in a judgmental way, in a critical way, in, in in a way that looks down on other people. But see, just the fact of believing you have a truth that helps others, and you, if you're able to do it in a respectful, friendly, sensitive, humble, wise way, that's not being arrogant at all. So being arrogant is not simply having a view on truth. Being arrogant is about what you do and how you approach that truth. That's myth number one. Myth number two. What's myth number two? A lot of people widely believe this, even though it's not true true all religions are basically the same and equally valid see according to this viewpoint all religions lead to the same goal to do good contribute to society help people fill a void meaning of life that's that kind of stuff and if there are any differences between Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, you know, Islam, all these, well, you know, it's really not that important. See, when, when, when a Muslim prays, when a Hindu prays, when a Buddhist prays, when a Christian prays, they're all just praying to the same thing. It's really all the same thing. Have you heard that before? Have you thought that before? See, sometimes people make this statement because they maybe haven't studied religions very much or they just don't care that much about religion. They don't really have a high regard for it you're going to find this. The closer you look at the teachings of different religions, the more you're going to find they're not the same thing. In fact, when you look at the teachings of these different religions, and you compare them side by side, you're going to find they contradict one another in ways that you cannot logically reconcile. Let me give you some examples. For example, religions differ on the way they view God. Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, the one who started Buddhism, he said there is no God. Hindus believe there are thousands of gods. Muslims, Jews, and Christians say there's only one God. And so which one is it? Is it one? Is it none? Is it thousands? Can they really all be right at the same time? You know, once there's a pastor, an author called Timothy Keller, uh, and he was invited to be the Christian representative on a panel discussion at a college about interfaith issues. And there was a, a Muslim imam there, there was a Jewish rabbi there, and they were all there to talk about differences among religions. And this is what Tim Keller wrote about that experience. He said this, he said, the conversation was courteous, intelligent, and respectful in tone. Each speaker affirmed that there were significant, irreconcilable differences between the major faiths. A case in point was the person of Jesus. We all agreed on the statement, if Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. The bottom line was, we couldn't all be equally right about the nature of God. See, how do you reconcile these different viewpoints together? <laughs> logically, you cannot. It's these kind of differences that led Huston Smith, who's one of the world's most acclaimed scholars in the area of world religions. He's not a Christian, but he writes this in his book, The World of Religions. He says, this view that all religions are basically the same appeals to our longing for human togetherness, but on inspection it proves to be the trickiest position. For as soon as it moves beyond vague generalities like every religion has some version of the golden rule, it founders, i.e. it collapses completely on the the fact that the religions differ in what they consider essential and what negotiable in other words religions teach different stuff They contradict one another, and you can't logically reconcile them. In philosophy, that's called the law of non-contradiction. It's this idea that two contradictory statements cannot be true at the same time in the same way. If one plus one equals two, one plus one cannot at the same time equal seven, or 37, or 400. It makes no logical sense to say that the contradictory teachings of all these religions are all right. That's why Dr. James Emery White, he's the former dean of Fuller Theological Seminary, he'll write this. He says, when you have divisions like this, you have only two options. You can either say that, any, uh, that somebody is right in that particular area and everybody else is wrong, or you can say that everyone is wrong. What you can't say is that everyone's right, that it's all the same path, the same idea, the same God. That would be intellectually confused at best and intellectually dishonest at worst. In other words, you look at all these different religions whose teachings contradict one another. You've got two choices. You can either say, you're all wrong. You're, you guys all have, the, the, you, you guys all missed it. Or you can say, okay, I've looked at all these. I think this one has it closest to being right or is right. But what you can't say, because they all contradict each other, you can't say, oh, you're all right. One plus one is one? One one plus one is two? Sure, yes. One plus one is 10? Sure, fine. You know, one one plus one is is 1652? Oh, sure, that's right too. You can't say that. Just logically, it doesn't make sense. But you may, well, JB, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Have you thought that before? Have you heard that before? See, can we reasonably say that... All religions are equally valid as long as the people who follow them are sincere. See, I had a relative who suffered from acute bipolar disorder. And whenever I'd go visit him, he would sincerely talk to me about how he believes he is God. And that he had someone else in Vancouver across, because I was living in Taiwan at the time. You know, and he, he had someone else in Vancouver who was the other God. And together they made the ultimate God. This is what he honestly, sincerely believed. He had these delusions of grandeur as part of his acute bipolar disorder. Let me ask you this question. Does the fact that he sincerely believed that he is God make him God? No. Of course not. Does the fact that he sincerely believed what he believed make that belief correct? No, it didn't. Take the ancient nation of Ammon, which worshipped a god called Moloch. And I don't know if you know how the the worship of Moloch worked. Is that parents who worship Moloch, would take their babies, their infant babies, they'd place them in the arms of this huge statue of Moloch. They'd build this huge pit. They'd, 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 they'd build this huge fire in the pit. And what they would do is they'd place their babies in the arms of the statue called Moloch as, as, this, as these babies burned alive to death. And the reason why they do it is because they believed that Moloch wanted child sacrifice. And that by giving them their child, that Moloch would bless them in other ways, give them financial prosperity in other things. And let me ask this question. Is that a valid religion? You're saying, oh, you know, all religions are valid. They're equally right. Is that a valid religion? They sincerely believe that by sacrificing their children, that Moloch would bless them. Does, does the fact that they sincerely believe that make it okay? That, that, that's right? That's valid? That's all right? Or take Jim Jones, for example. Back in the 70s, he led a group of people to believe some really strange things about God, about himself, about the world. And he convinced about 900 of them to move from the mainland United States to Guyana, where he set up a town in his own name called Jonestown. And what Jim Jones did is he, at the end of that time there, he got these big tubs of Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. And he said, all right, we're going to do what's called revolutionary suicide. To protest everything that's going on in the world and so he drank everyone drank and over 900 people including children died that day let me ask you this question is is that a valid religion like is that just as valid equally right as any other religion when we say oh all religions are valid and correct see are the worship of moloch and the cult of james jones equally as good as anything else you'll find if not why not Aren't all religions equally valid, are we saying? What, what, what makes these religions unacceptable, but others are acceptable? You know, is it just because they're not as popular, or they're not mainstream, or they're not as, not as tame, they're not as domesticated because they, don't hurt, because they hurt people? Where, where, where do you draw the line? Who are you going to decide to exclude when you say all religions are fine and good and valid and right except these ones? See, the truth is this. Deep down... I don't think we really believe that all religions are right and equally valid or that it's okay, about, it's okay what you believe as long as you're sincere. I think deep down, we know it matters what you believe and that some ideas are better to believe than others. And if you're not sure about that, just ask yourself, would you rather that your son be a Christian or a Jim Jones follower? Or ask yourself, would you rather that your wife or your daughter-in-law one day be a follower of Jesus or a worshiper of Moloch? Oh, you want to sacrifice my grandson, my grandchild to Moloch? Oh, sure, go ahead. Yeah, go. that's fine. All all religions are equally valid. See, this thing, to say that all religions are right and equally valid is not just logically impossible because they contradict one another, it also runs counter to our real-life experience. I believe the more intellectually honest, the more morally responsible approach— is to look at the different views. Look at these different religions. Ask yourself, which of these views makes the most sense of a reality, and which one offers the best solution? And so what's the myth? The myth is, oh, all religions are equally valid. They're basically the same. The truth is, since the religions of the world contradict one another in irreconcilable ways, the more logical and honest approach is to ask, which view makes the most sense of a reality and offers the best solution? Let's turn to that right now. So you might think, well, okay, with all these different religions, how can I possibly know which one is the best, which one is true? And when I was 19 years old, I, even though I grew up, you know, going to church and I grew up in a so-called Christian home, I, I had so many questions. At 19 years old, I questioned my entire faith in Jesus. You know, how do I know that there's even a God? How do I know that Jesus really existed? How do I know that when Christians say that Jesus is the way to God and the only way, that that is not just a lie or you know, a fabrication? I started to really doubt everything. And so what it did was it caused me to really start researching and investigating these issues that were really nagging at my heart. One of them was the existence of God, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. The other one was about these different religions. And as I studied different religions, one thing I learned is this, is that no matter what religion you choose to believe in, or if you choose, I'm not going to have a religion, I'm going to be a Gnostic, I'm going to be an atheist, you know, it takes a certain measure of faith to believe what you believe. You know, if, if you are going to be an atheist, it takes some faith to do that, believe it or not. If you're going to be an agnostic, it takes faith to be that. If you're going to be a Hindu, it takes faith to believe that. You know, if you're going to be spiritual but not religious, it takes faith to be that. And faith isn't necessarily just jumping blindly into something. It's about looking at the evidence in front of you and making the best judgment that you can. That's one thing I learned. It takes faith. But there's another thing that I learned in the process. Is that what makes Christianity unique among the different religions of the world? And I'm not going to share all of them with you, but I'm going to share two things that make Christianity unique compared to other religions that I would invite you to consider. Whether you're here exploring Christianity or you've been a Christian a really long time. What are some things that make Christianity unique compared to the religions of this world? Let's take a look at two today. Number one is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, whenever anyone in history has ever started a religion, whether it was Muhammad who started Islam Or it's Siddhartha Gautama, who started Buddhism. Or it's A.C. Swanee, who started the Hare Krishna movement. Or it's Joseph Smith, who started Mormonism. In each case, this person would claim to know a whole bunch of things about life, about God, about what happens after they die. And then, after making all these claims, that individual would die themselves, and you'd never hear from them again. And in truth, you don't really know what happened to them after they died. We don't even really know if what happened to them is what they said would happen to them. We don't know. But there's one exception to that. Jesus Christ made a bunch of claims about who God is, about the meaning and purpose of life, about what happens after we die. And then to prove that you can trust what Jesus says, Jesus rose again. And because Jesus rose again, I would submit, if that is truly a historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then I would submit to you that Jesus' words What he said about life, what he said about God, what he said about life after death. That his words, Jesus' words, carry more weight than any person who didn't rise from the dead. Dr. Paul Williams, he's a professor emeritus of Buddhism at the University of Bristol. And he's the former president of the UK Association for Buddhist Studies. For 20 years, Paul Williams practiced and taught Tibetan Buddhism and became one of the world's top experts in Buddhism. But for some reason, for Dr. Williams, there was this nagging question that his Buddhist faith could not answer, which is why are we even here in the first place? Because according to Dr. Williams, is that Buddhists don't ask that question they believe certain things about why we're here. They believe that, you know, in reincarnation, this idea that, you know, one day you might be a human being in one lifetime, next next time you're going to be reincarnated maybe as a, a vegetable or as a dog, and they believe that whatever it is that is going on in your life is the direct result, either a reward or a punishment for things that happened in this life or a previous life. And so whenever suffering happens to you, anything bad that happens to you, it's maybe because you did something bad in a previous life. Or maybe you did something bad in this life and you're being punished for it. And see, that's the law of karma. But th- he says that you know, that, that you know, Buddhists never ask the question, well, why are we here in the first place? And so Dr. Williams started to wonder about that question and go, there must be an answer to this question. He started to investigate, and he realized that actually, though Buddhists say there is no God, traditional Buddhism at least, he considered the evidence and realized, you know what? There's really good evidence to believe there is a God who started all of this. And we looked at some of that evidence a few weeks ago. And then he started to consider the evidence for Christianity. And specifically, he focused on the resurrection. And at first, he thought it's a bunch of myths, it's a bunch of legends. But as he looked more closely at the historical evidence, he found that the best explanation for that empty tomb, the best explanation for all those post-resurrection appearances, the best reason why Christianity rose and these disciples transformed so much is because... The best explanation is that this actually happened, that Jesus actually rose from the grave. And so, and so to, to, to the shock of his family, to the shock of his friends, to the, to the shock of his fellow academics, he even published a book called The Unexpected Way, which describes his journey from Buddhism to Christianity and the reasons why he changed. But see, a huge part of that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you've got questions about the resurrection, if you're like, isn't that a hoax? Isn't that just a fable? If, you want, if you're open at all, I would encourage you to check out a message that we gave back in April 2019. You could go to our Thrive Church podcast. There's a message there called Resurrection Fact or Fiction. And there we look at the arguments for and against the resurrection of Jesus and the evidence that points to it. I think it will really be helpful for you. But see, how can Jesus be the only way to God? A huge reason is because Jesus is the only one, the only one who ever founded a religious movement who backed up what he said by rising from the grave. That's the first unique feature of Christianity. The second is this. The message that we are saved by God's grace, that means his undeserved kindness, not by our works. See, the other thing you're going to find about Christianity that is so unique compared to every other religion is this. Is that every other religion... It's all about what you have to do to get to God. If I walk enough old people across the street, if I pray enough, if I, you know, read enough scripture, if I fast enough, if I do all these good things and control my mind enough, that somehow I'll get to heaven, or somehow I'll I'll experience enlightenment, I'll, I'll obtain nirvana, you know, I will become my own God in some cases. It's all about what you have to do, how many spiritual brownie points you need to earn to get to the divine, to reach God. The thing that puts Christianity in another place is that it's not about that. It's not about what you have to do to get to God. In fact, the Bible's really clear that no matter how hard we try, we can't get to God on our own merit because none of us is perfect like God is. And see, if, why don't you read with me Romans 3, verse 10. What does it say? It says, as, is, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, and see, you might say, "Well, you know, hey, I'm a really good person, or actually, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not a rapist, I'm not a murderer. I'm better than most people in this world, and we think that compared to most people, we're pretty good, and that therefore, God should look upon us with favor." But having us know that if what the Bible says is true, God's standard is not how you compare to your neighbor. God's standard is how you compare to God Himself. And that's why Romans 3.23 says it this way. It says, for everyone, read it with me, please. It says, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And I remember when I was investigating Christianity, questioning Christianity, exploring Christianity, to me, and I was exploring other religions too, when I'd read Romans 3.23, I'd be like, you know, that makes sense to me is that I can't meet my own standards, let alone God's standards. What makes me think that I can reach God on my own there I can't. If I think I can, I'm either underestimating myself, or sorry, I'm either overestimating myself, or I'm underestimating God. But see compared to God, none of us measures up. Mother Teresa didn't measure up. Gandhi didn't measure up. And because of our sin, the Bible says, the consequence is we can't be with God. God is perfect. We're not. We can't be with God. The Bible says that the wages of our sin is death. Not just physical death, but it means spiritual separation from God. Such that no matter how much we want to be with God, no matter how hard we try, no matter how good we think we are, we can't get to God on our own. But the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when God knew there were was no way that we could get to him, he made a way to get to us. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that whatever debt we owed God is paid for in full, so that we don't have to earn our way there. God reached for us in return. And this is the thing, is that is the gospel of grace. It's God's undeserved kindness. God's sacrifice. the only thing that could measure up to a standard, it's himself. And why? It's because he loves you and he loves me. He did it so that he could have a relationship with you and me, because he couldn't stand to be apart from us forever. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why Romans three twenty one to twenty four says it this way. What does it say? It says, "But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago." Would you please keep on reading, maybe ten times louder, please? It says, "We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is." true for everyone who believes no matter who we are for everyone has sinned we all fall short of god's glorious standard yet god with undeserved kindness declares that we are righteous he did this through christ jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins whereas other religions will say it's all about what you have to do to get to god the gospel of grace, of undeserved kindness from Jesus Christ says, it's not about what you have to do. It's, what, it's about what God has already done for you. It's, you know, with other faiths, you're going to say, you know, look at my resume. Look at what I've done, God, or whatever it is, whatever divinity we're looking at, is look at what I've done. With Christianity, it's not look at what I've done. It's look at what Jesus has done at the cross for me. And see, that's the great unique thing about Christianity. It's not about us reaching for God. It's about God in his love reaching for us. That's why John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says it this way. Read it with me. He says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Unlike other founders of different religions who say, I have the truth. Here is the truth. This way to the truth. Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, I have the truth, or here's the truth. He says, I am the truth, is that truth is a person. Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. See, how can Jesus be the only way to God? According to Christianity, according to the Bible, it's because no one else has paid for your sins. Everyone else is, all oh, do good, try to earn your way out of your sins. Maybe you'll, you'll, you'll escape the cycle of karma in your life if you do enough good. Others, like you know, if you pray enough, maybe you'll be good enough, and maybe you'll get there. But you know, it's, it's, it's not that. Jesus is saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You're only saved by what I did for you. And so Jesus, that's why Christians say he's the only way to God. It's because Jesus did what no one else has done. If someone else did it, it's a different conversation. But it's because Jesus claimed to do something for us that Muhammad, that you know, Siddhartha Gautama, that AC Swanee, that these people never did. And, and, and so that's why it's unique. But you might be, well, JB, what about people who've never heard of Jesus? You know, what about, you know, people who maybe live on a deserted island and no, there's no Christian missionary that ever came to their doorstep and said, Jesus loves you. How about them? Let's address that right now. Romans 1, 18 to 20. Could you read this with me in a big loud voice? What does it say? It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. See, what's this passage saying? See, this passage is saying that no matter where you are born, no matter where you come from, even if you're to live on the farthest edge of our planet, God has revealed himself to us. He's done so through creation, revealing his power. He's done so by giving us a conscience so that even if you've never read a Bible or opened a holy, so-called holy book, we know right and wrong inside. It's like there's a written moral law that's been written on our heart. And, And the Bible says here that God has revealed himself, his character, who he is, his power through that. And see, being a just and fair God, it says that he will judge each, Each person based on what he revealed to them and how that person responded. And so, say there's a person who's living on a deserted island. Never heard of Jesus. But that person looks and he says, you know what, God, I know that you're here. I know that you're there. I know that because I look at all this and I'm like, you know, the best explanation for all of it is you. I I, I know that you're there because I know that in my heart there's a conscience. I know what I should do. I know right and wrong. But I realize that I don't always do it. I don't always do the right thing. And I ask you to help me. I ask you for your mercy. If that is the situation, and that person, you know, humbles himself before God, I believe God, because he's just and fair, will respond to that person with mercy, even if that person had never heard of Jesus. You know, if that person, on the other hand, recognizes there's a God, recognizes that there's a moral law to obey, but in his heart says, you know what? God, screw you. God, up yours. I won't have nothing to do with you. I'm going to do things my way, God is going to deal with that person justly too, even if that person never heard of Jesus. And see, what about miscarried babies or stillborns or children who died so young not being able to understand the message of the gospel? You know, I believe, because the Bible tells me so, that God is loving, just, and fair. And I have no doubt in my mind or heart That babies, stillborns, children who died so young without understanding the message of the gospel, that they are in heaven with God today. And I believe that not just because it sounds good. I believe that because I think there's a basis in the Bible for it. Does that mean that there's salvation outside of Jesus? No. No, it doesn't. What it means is that anyone who was saved, whether it was before Jesus came to this earth, while Jesus was on this earth, or after Jesus ascended from this earth, that everyone is saved by the grace and the mercy that flow from Jesus Christ, whether they specifically heard the name of Jesus or not. That's why C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist who became an agnostic who eventually became a Christian, he wrote this. He said, "We do not know that no—sorry, well, we do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know Him can be saved through Him." And so hopefully for those who had questions, oh, what about this person? What about that situation? Hopefully that addresses some of the questions you have today. Finally, what do we do with all of this? Let me give you three quick suggestions on what we can do, and we're going to end today. See, the first thing that I encourage you to do is treat people from other faiths with love, humility, sensitivity, and respect. See, many people fear that when a person gets religion— or they, they have this exclusive view of truth that, that what's naturally going to follow is they're going to become really violent, oppressive people, intolerant of others. That doesn't need to be the case. In fact, it shouldn't be the case when it comes to Christianity. Because true, genuine, biblical Christianity doesn't cause us to be oppressive and violent toward other people who don't believe what we believe. True, genuine, biblical Christianity and the Holy Spirit living inside us cause us to be more respectful of others more sensitive to them, less self-centered. And that's because built into Christianity is the belief that we are all sinners who need a savior, that we are loved by God, not because of our performance, but simply because God is love. And that none of us is saved by our own doing, or our own good works, but we're saved by grace, his undeserved kindness. And so if that's the case, Christians have no room for pride. No room for arrogance. And so be sensitive to people who come from different faith. Be a bridge builder, not a bridge burner. Seek, when you see people who are coming from another faith, seek to listen and understand where they're coming from before you share what you want to share. And when it's time to share it, don't be afraid to share it. But do it with gentleness, respect, sensitivity, and humility. If you believe that church, say amen. Second thing, and this one is for those of you who are just exploring Christianity right now. And you might not be a Christian right now. You're just like, you know, I'm just kind of checking things out. I'd like to to do this. I'd encourage you to do this. Realize that religions are not all the same. They really aren't. But you want to ask yourself, what faith offers the most reasonable explanation for what's going on in this world? What faith offers the best solution for what's going on in this world? Now, you might be, well, JB, I know so many Christian hypocrites. Guys or girls who say they're Christians, but they act anything but like it. And you know what? Let me tell you this. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the next week. Um, the fact is that every faith, every worldview has hypocrites. What do we do about that? We're going to talk about that next week. But so hypocr- hypocrisy and hypocrites is nothing new and nothing unique to Christianity. But what I'd like you to be clear on today, if you're exploring Christianity, is what makes Christianity unique. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's the gospel of grace that God saves us, not by performance, but by his undeserved kindness. Finally, number three, and this is for all of us, respond to God's love expressed through Jesus Christ. We want to give you an opportunity to do that just now. Have you guys found this helpful in this place this morning? Let's all stand, and I encourage you just to give God a big hand here in this place as you're standing, and we're going to respond to God. I said give God a big hand. Yeah, go ahead and do that. That's great. I'm going to ask our team to lead us in a song. After that, I'm going to lead you in a short time of prayer. Let's go ahead and let's respond to God's love right now.